the kingdom belongs to his sheep and your life is in the hands of a God who never sleeps fear not little lamb for the kingdom belongs to his sheep and your life is in the hands of a God who Welcome back to Tending Lambs. For today's episode, Abby, Sam, and I interviewed Dr. Don Owsley of Relevate Counseling Ministry. On the way, we should approach the book of Proverbs, and specifically the verses utilized by traditional punitive parents to spank. It's the first in a series we're doing on Proverbs, and we are very blessed to have had Don available to share his wisdom on the subject. We hope this interview is edifying and illuminating for you. So without further ado, enjoy the interview. Hey, John, thank you for being with us. Oh, it's a privilege. I'm so happy to be with you. It's been a lot of fun getting to know uh, all of you through the website and uh, Facebook, I mean. It's mm -hmm. pretty awesome. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Would you mind starting us off with a little bit of an introduction of who you are? Sure. Um, I've done a lot in the past couple of hundred years, so <laughs> that have happened. Uh, obviously, I'm a believer in Christ. After high school, I was an army vet, and from there, I became a military. Um, well, I served in the military for eight years. I was an elementary school teacher, then a youth director, and then a, uh, a teacher in a uh, private Christian school, as well as the principal of that school. Uh, but right now I'm a retired pastor after serving 20 years. I'm an affiliate faculty member with CCU, and I occasionally instruct, haven't done it in a couple of years, but occasionally when there are enough students at New Geneva Seminary, uh, where I also serve on the board, I instruct the, uh, one of the classes for the doctoral program. I'm a dad. My wife and I adopted our, our second child. I'm also a grandfather, and we are raising our two-year-old grandson. Uh, so we're doing parenting the third time around. I'm a counselor. I've been a counselor uh, throughout the years that I was a pastor, and um, I'm a parent coach currently. That kind of wraps it up. But, uh, wow. Well, you're busy. You're a busy guy. <laughs> um, would you mind telling us a little bit about your uh, journey into gentle parenting? Sure. How did that sure. come about? My, my wife and I got married and uh, tried to have children pretty much right away. That didn't happen. Nine years later, um, she gave birth to our first child, a little girl. And that was, we were ecstatic. So she had a nine-year pregnancy. And then after that, we were all over the world. Well, the United States anyway. Um, and uh, our daughter, who was about eight and a half at that time, wanted a baby sister. And we kept telling her, no, we can't, you know, be pregnant again. It's not going to work. Forget it. 
Uh, she said, well, I want a baby sister. She wouldn't give it up. She kept praying. And every night, you know, she would pray, I want a baby sister. And so we said, um, so then my wife said, why don't we look into adopting? And I thought, oh, brother, you know, big eye roll. So we did. We checked it out, went through the process. Little did we know that on March 1st of that year, um, when we started the training, you know, for the adoption, going through the whole process, that she was born. And one thing led to another. Uh, we met her at six months old. Um, they placed her in our home at seven months old. And she had been severely abused and neglected in the first three months. Mm. Um, had a, uh, that's a long story in itself. And when we raised our older daughter, we, we used all the traditional things that you're all familiar with, the spanking, the Bible, you know, pretty, we were rigorous, but we didn't have to be very much, not with her because she was so compliant and so sweet and loving, yeah. very sensitive. You could just look at her and she would start to cry. And, and uh, she was a sweetie. So we, we adopt this child second child and um she was total opposite and we had no clue about reactive attachment disorder now um, mm -hmm. it's a trauma-based disorder we, we didn't know anything about it and she continued her behaviors continued to get super wild and just so defiant you know and, and we couldn't believe it so we, we read books. I read oh, over a couple dozen books, followed everything that was available to us at that time. Um, even had a couple of conference speakers at a church that we planted. Uh, Paul Tripp was the first one on, on uh, teenagers. And uh, then we had Reb Bradley. I don't know if you're familiar with him. We had him as a conference speaker and uh, we had him in our home. We hosted him during the conference. And oh. our daughter was just a wild child. And he said, you really need to get a handle on it. And I was a pastor. We, we had planted a church. And uh, I kept hearing that from different people. Get a handle on her. You need to control her. She's out of control. You do something about it. Wow. So Red Bradley's philosophy, like many others, were you need to spank. And so we are. So, well, you spank, you spank until they stop crying. That makes a lot of sense. Right? Wow. Oh, you really know. Okay. So that's what we did. And we did that uh, for quite a few years. I lost my position in part because the, um, not, not at that church. We went to another church. You know, the elders believed I was a horrible father because of our daughter. Mm. And, okay. and we didn't know what was going on. We had no, no clue. Nothing was working. But at, by that time, uh, we had decided enough is enough. There, there was no connection between the bum and the brain. Yeah. Uh, spanking did nothing. And um, when we moved to Southern California, a, an event happened to her that allowed us to get some social services help and counseling. We sat in the room with the, the uh, social worker and we told her a little bit about the story and the problem we were having with her and her lack of discipline and her behaviors and everything. Yeah. And they, um, 
She said, here, she pulls out a, a sheet of paper, puts it in front of my wife and me and said, look over this and check off, you know, all the behavioral characteristics. And so we checked all of them. I don't know, there was 30 of them. And uh, she said, have you ever heard of reactive attachment? I said, never. Well, by that time, we were beginning to soften towards the idea that uh, psychology might have something. <laughs> and, you know, the brain might have something to do with it. It's not all spiritual. Um, but, but from that moment on, we began to investigate and explore other options than spanking. We had already determined we're not spanking. That was one of the reasons why the elders were so mad. At, uh, at wow. Me. You know, we're not going to do spanking anymore. It's not, you know, it's not effective. It makes the relationship worse. So that was, uh, oh, that was 2006 or seven. And over the past 12 years, I've been systematically studying this whole issue. Then we begin to learn about the brain and, you know, the, the development and the problems and these disorders and, and all that. So that launched me into um, trying to help people. My wife kept getting in conversations with people who had adopted children whose behaviors were just like ours. And so we were able to give them our story and direct them towards, you know, some really good help. Um, and, and then I, I got to thinking, you know, if the Bible really doesn't say what it said, I threw away those 25 books. I just tossed them. I didn't want anybody to read them. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, what does it mean and what does it say? And that's how it, we got into this uh, gentle parenting. I put it on my blog, yeah, a little more detail on uh, our planned parenthood on relevate.org. Uh, so that, that post there gives something of uh, what we've been through. And that's mm-hmm. our background. Now, now we have a third time. <laughs> we have our little father where... We're experimenting, if you will, you know, trying out uh, new ideas. Doing so it again. Doing it again. Third time. We might get it right. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I have read that blog post about our Planned Parenthood, so we'll make sure we include that in the show notes. It really is such an inspiring story. And um, we see a lot of parents of adopted kids in the gentle parenting community because of the trauma backgrounds. Yes. Um, I think it's pretty pretty normal thing so the interesting thing is my mother was not a professing believer but when our little adopted girl was a year old she uh, she told us she said I think you really need to see some kind of specialist or therapist there's something different about it said, ah, all she needs is a lot of love and spanking <laughs> and that was our viewpoint wow. I wish we had listened yeah. Then perhaps we could have gotten, but yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thankful we're. Uh, it seems to be the trend seems to be changing a little bit as far as uh, Christianity not being so adverse right. to mental health. Um, right. So. Yeah. so, John, can you tell us just a little bit what are some of the most important rules of exegesis when we approach? the book of Proverbs. And what are some of the main errors that you've experienced in your counseling um, with how parents approach the book of Proverbs? 
Great questions. Well, uh, you, we need to approach Proverbs pretty much like we do any uh, studying any other book of the Bible. And the, the thing that you'll hear me repeat again and again is context. It's all about context. And so what's very important is to realize that every book is different. It has a different genre. In certain books, there are different genres, uh, you know, themes and so forth and purposes for each book. Uh, so it, it really helps us to get out of our, our Western culture in which we're saturated and go back in time and try to place ourselves as, as much as possible into the culture of the time. So we have to do some time traveling, going back to Proverbs. And that is to, to understand the customs and traditions, the history, the culture, uh, the society of the day, the rules, uh, and all that. And culture is very, very important because language is intim intimately connected and tied to culture. Uh, language informs culture and vice versa. So uh, then we need to understand the Hebrew language is so different than the Western languages. You know, our language comes out of uh, Latin, some influence with the Greek, as you know, and the Germanic languages and all that. But the Hebrew language has a, um, an, as they say, Oriental or Eastern influence. It's a Semitic language. And therefore, it is a language of description. It is not a language of precision. That's what mm. upsets a lot of people. You know, it's, well, here in, in Chronicles, it talks about 600,000. In Kings, it talks about 620,000. You know, which one is right? Well, they weren't interested in precision. Yeah. You know, wow. Yeah. Numeric precision. It, it was a language of um, uh, an expression, uh, expressive language of description. It's concrete. It's not abstract. We think in terms of abstract ideas. And so by, by that, I mean, in order for them to come across with an abstract uh, thought or idea or word, they use a concrete word and add one of the five senses to it. For example, anger in Hebrew, if you look at the word itself, it is a combination of something that means a hot nose or a red hot nose. <laughs> Not anger. Wow. So we have, to, we have to recognize that we are not speaking Hebrew and we have to take off our Western caps and really immerse ourselves into the culture of the time. Now, that takes a lot of work, but there are so many, so many wonderful, beneficial um, works and, and books that are available. The language of Hebrew, the Hebrew language to the ancient, especially, is a language of feeling and doing. There's a lot of emotion that goes on in, uh, in Hebrew, you know, taking the words and not connecting them to the context, the surrounding sentences and the context. So if Mm -hmm. We're going to be looking at the, the rod and the father and the son and those words. We have to compare that with the sentence, then the surrounding uh, sentences, and then the whole book of Pro the chapter in the whole book of Proverbs. Okay. So those are some key things that we need to understand. And one last very important thing is that we, as Christians, 
we need to understand that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Yeah. So our starting point is not in Proverbs, but is in the New Testament. Yeah. yeah. And most often what we tend to do is, as Christian parents is jump to Proverbs and then go to the New Testament when it should be the opposite. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm really excited about is um, actually getting the opportunity to kind of get our hands dirty in this episode and actually do the work. So let's, I guess, just start with that. What is the book of Proverbs? Who was it written to? What's the genre? Um, And like you said, you know, how do we kind of approach it from a redemptive narrative? How do we approach it through the lens of the New Testament? Excellent. Yeah. Those are the kinds of questions that many of us have not even thought about. You know, we're we're oriented to look at the uh, book of Proverbs as a a parenting book, which is a mistake. And uh, it's a manual for us. and, And it wasn't written for that purpose. Hmm. But Proverbs is, um, is like any other ancient Near Eastern proverb. It, it's just that. It's not quite like Aesop's fables, but similar. And um, it, it's very similar to the parables that Jesus taught. There, Solomon is given the uh, attribution of being the author. He was a main author of most of the Proverbs, but there were others that contributed to it. And in fact, certain sections, if you read some good scholarly works, they'll tell you that they borrowed from some other cultures, Proverbs to insert into the book of Proverbs. So there was an Arger, King Lemuel and, and many others. King Hezekiah's uh, men probably contributed to some of the Proverbs. They're the ones that took all the different Proverbs and organized them together into a book. They attribute it to Solomon because he was known as the wise, wise man. Uh, the book was immediate. Uh, we have to understand who the immediate audience is. You know, who, who it's, it was written to me kind of as you know, way down the line. The, the purpose was who was the initial immediate audience. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something we have to um, consider. Um, it was written to fathers who were training their oldest son to be potential leaders, uh, even maybe a potential king, you know, a clan's leader, a patriarch, or whatever. It was royal training. It was a catechism of royal royalty. It was given for them, and that mm. was the immediate audience. It was now fathers. We think of fathers. We think of dad, dear old dad, where father in the Hebrew could be dear old dad, could be grandpa. It could be the clan's patriarch, you know, the the oldest one who's in charge has all these uh, relatives around. It could be also um, one who was the sage. Uh, uh, Tremper Longman brings that out in his commentary, that a sage was also called the father of your good teacher was called the father. So what you know, is it talking about fathers and mothers as being the immediate? Um, probably, but it was much more extensive than just, you know, dear old dad who, who was teaching. Um, 
And it was, it was to give instruction and wisdom to the son who was going to ultimately become a, a leader within Israel. And uh, so it was for royalty. Yeah, there's a number of writers who've brought that out. It's an excellent um, point. That isn't just, you know, mom and dad, you know, got this book on how to, how to, kid, uh, how to work with kids. <laughs> the sons are, um, the most popular word or term for son is Ben. Mm-hmm. It means the son. It means progeny, um, almost exclusively male in all, all the contexts. It, um, the, the other son is, we'll talk about this later, Na'ar, which is almost exclusively referring to somebody who is between the age of 12 and 24. Some say 16 and 24, mm-hmm. but puberty essentially and time for marriage. So wow. that was Na'ar. And Na'ar is in those sections as we'll look in the various uh, particular Proverbs, the, the verses. Na'ar is what is used most of, the, most of the time for them. Proverbs has a twofold purpose. We see this in chapter 1, verses 2, uh, verse 2, 2a and 2b. It, it, 2a says to know wisdom, and 2b is to discern. Uh, to know wisdom and instruction, is uh, there, there's a difference in their idea. Wisdom is a term given from the learner's point of view. It's what the learner, the student gets. Uh, instruction is from the teacher's point of view. So the teacher mm-hmm. instructs. There is mm-hmm. instruction that's attached to the teacher. Mm-hmm. Wisdom ought to be attached to the student, the one who receives it. Now, the question is, student, how will you ever know wisdom? And that was very important because wisdom was thinking God's thoughts about all of life and becoming skilled in the issues of life. It has to do with wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity, and fairness as one walks in the path of life. Um, And how do you know? Well, Proverbs 1 verses 3 and following tells us. Before we even get to the short, pithy statements in which all these, you know, the spanking verses, suppose spanking verses, we have chapters one through nine. And chapters one through nine demonstrate the way to receive wisdom and to give instruction. Mm. Now, here's, here's just a broad brush. And that's, this is pretty important for us to understand, um, that we often will jump to chapters 10 through 31 without taking into consideration part one. And, and part one, chapter one is the introduction. Chapters two through seven is basically the core wisdom and the core instruction, what it's all about. Um, they were originally organized in seven different um, sections with 22 lines each and somehow between Hezekiah's arrangement and when they you know, put the Bible together, that kind of fell apart. But the reason why it was arranged that way is because this was to say, this is what uh, knowledge is, wisdom is, and how to receive the instruction. And the number seven is perfection. So we want to do this 
right so we can live the righteous life before God. Then we come to chapter 8, and that's a portrait of true wisdom, and it's personified. Now, we understand when we go to the New Testament, uh, in chapter 8, the reader, the original reader would have read that and said, well, who's this talking about? Is it talking my, my son is going to be the you know, one who personifies great wisdom? Was it Solomon? No, he's kind of gone already. <laughs> who is this talking about? Um, some thought maybe it was Daniel, you know, later on. And it turns out it's Christ himself. Yeah. You know, this yeah. from Colossians 1, right? He's the creator and he's the, the one who is the wise one. Uh, we see this uh, Matthew 12, verse 19, a very wonderful fulfillment of Proverbs chapter 8. He, he was wise beyond his years teaching the, the leaders in the temple. Um, Luke 2, you know, he was a boy filled with wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 is Christ is our wisdom. So chapter 8 is all about wisdom. And that's kind of like the pivot. That's the, the core, the central thing. So mm -hmm. out of that then flows um, chapters uh, 10 through 31. But before that is chapter 9. And chapter 1 through 9, you know, it climaxes when we get to chapter 9. This whole thing about Proverbs. And you read through it, and most of that is irrelevant or really um, risque. <laughs> It's hmm. R-rated, maybe even X-rated for kids, children. It is meant for the older children who had a little more moxie and were learning the ropes of what it means to be a man. Hmm. So when you get to chapter 9, this is where it climaxes. You have an encounter. There are two women personified, two different women. And it's the father who instructs, who says to the son, you have a choice. You can either choose woman folly or you can choose woman wisdom. Yeah. And woman folly is on one hill and woman wisdom on, is on the other. Now, the reason for that reference is because ultimately the two women uh, are exemplars of um, God. You have God who's exemplified on the hill because uh, in the ancient Near East, you always put your temples and everything on a hill because you were closest to God. Right. So the gods were on hills. So woman folly represented the, the gods or the goddesses of the ancient Near East. You know, all the ites, the termites and Jebusites. And, 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 <laughs> um, so the question is, it says, you reader, learner of wisdom, you have a decision to make. After you've been taught all this, what will you choose? Will you be the fool to chase after the gods and goddesses of the world? Or are you going to be uh, one who is wrapped in wisdom and knowledge and understanding with God and remain covenantally faithful to the Lord and follow after God who is wise? Mm. And, and so we, what we tend to do is we rush to those passages about the rod and the sun and, and all that and make a big deal about spanking, while often totally forgetting about chapters 1 through 9 yeah. and, and what those verses in, uh, uh, you know, child discipline and spanking have to do with that.
Well, let me let me add, you know, instruction because you see it a lot in chapters ten through thirty-one. Instructions as a term, as I said, reflects the teacher's perspective. The word is yasar. Another way to interpret it is discipline. Mm -hmm. So when you read discipline, again, is it discipline as a punitive measure or is it discipline as a decisive? Yeah. And most of the time it has to do with instruction. Right. Many people look at that, especially if they're clueless, I don't want to say clueless, they just haven't been taught or informed. And they'll say, well, see, they need to be disciplined. Mm -hmm. Then the term could literally means instruct. There's instruction. I like what Clay Clarkson says in his, his book is, discipline's instruction is all about cultivating the good soil that will receive the truth of the gospel, which yeah. really is what, it, what it's about. Then we come to the teachers. Who are the teachers? Well, we know in Deuteronomy 4, the teachers, God teaches through his word, the law. Initially, it was the first five books, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then God's leaders would teach. One of the key things of the priests in Israel, that was one of their key functions, is to teach and um, not necessarily the prophets. So Deuteronomy 4, God teaches through the law and God's leaders teach. And then in Deuteronomy 6, mom and dad teach, especially fathers. And uh, Deuteronomy 11, they, they command the parents and then they command the covenantal leaders to teach these sons. It's their responsibility. So all of life for the Jewish boy, especially the firstborn, was a school. Um, other sons and daughters could take advantage of it, but the emphasis, because of the way they were patriarchal and all that, the emphasis was on the oldest son. He got most of the training, and it was the leaders and the parents who, who had to take up on that and hold that responsibility. Uh, so Proverbs, what Proverbs does is it takes essentially the book of Deuteronomy and um, puts it in a kind of a catechetical form, meaning it doesn't give us necessarily a question and answer, but it's, okay, the young man, you can imagine a 12 or 13-year-old man, young boy, is beginning to think about life and he's being trained, and he reads or hears, probably doesn't read, he hears, the book of Deuteronomy, and he's going, what in the world? What is it? Oh. You know, he's scratching his head, and it's, um, it's not like the Dr. Seuss books or anything like that. So he's, <laughs> he's saying, oh, I don't get it. So Solomon and some of the others came up with this, uh, you know, God did ultimately, came up with this ingenious way of instructing and teaching in a very basic, practical down-to-earth manner, the whole business found about the law in Deuteronomy. So, for example, Proverbs 19, honor your parents. Proverbs 1, don't murder. Proverbs 2, uh, say no to adultery. That's really appropriate for little kids, right? Uh, <laughs> Proverbs 30, don't steal. Proverbs 12, it's a warning against falsehood. Uh, Proverbs 15, don't covet. It, so it's taking Deuteronomy and it's fleshing it out in a very practical way. It's kind of like a yeah. uh, you know, book for teens to learn. And with a proverb is, uh, as we know, you know, 
Um, you can kill two birds with one stone. That's kind of a proverb. You know, they're, they're little pithy statements that are very helpful. We yeah. can memorize them easy and, and, and uh, to uh, come together and, and apply it. The, the Pentateuch, the law, first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, focus on the community of God's people. Uh, the community as a group and how they relate to God and to others, loving God and loving others. Mm-hmm. However, Proverbs, on the other hand, has the focus on the individual and how the individual relates to God and the community. So there's, you know, there's a different aspect and different perspective. Then we get into not only instruction, but to discern the word of understanding. And to discern means to learn by the ropes. Um, the, the picture I often have is a, of a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout who has learned all these wonderful skills, you know, how to put, you know, make a campfire or, or cook or, you know, they do all these things. That's essentially the idea behind discernment, to discern. And the discernment is we're called to have a discernment of God's word. The, uh, then, then after all that is said and done, that's the backdrop. We come to chapters 10 through 31. 10 through 31 um, is a collection of short phrases that basically answers what happens if you have shown by your behavior or practice that you have indeed embraced the wisdom, the life, the path of God. Um, Or you haven't. It's the, the wise one or the foolish one. Yeah. Um, if you bring grief by your behavior to your mom, to your father, you dishonor them, um, that means obviously you're in the direction of the fool. The Proverbs is not a book that merely tells us how to get along in life. We like to use it that way, but it's much more than that. It's, It's basically how to live life before the face of God into eternity. And, And how do we apply um, God's word, the law, to that. The, the predominant theme is the fear of the Lord. And uh, in chapter one, right? And, and to fear God ultimately means to know, to trust, to obey, and, and uh, you know, to do all that for the Lord of the covenant. You know, what is it? It's, a, it's the proper response to God. And I believe that one of the reasons why spanking, the application of the rod in Proverbs, and we see this in Deuteronomy, is to, to literally put so much pain on them that they recognize that God's wrath can be this painful. Mm-hmm. Now, again, let's just stay in the Old Testament. Let's not get to the New. <laughs> so we have to think like they did. So that, it was a very legitimate and very, um, what would you say, a cohesive understanding of the fear of the Lord, uh, of the Lord as being a, 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 uh, a severe reverence and, a, and affection, but it was also it literally meant to fear him. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, facing such punishment it should be fearful. So godly fear then will turn out true godly fear is wisdom, life, and and right living. Yeah. 
All right, that's the background. There you okay. have it. Okay, so with that background in mind, why don't we jump into the typical verses and go ahead with that background and um, exegete these, these <laughs> Proverbs. Sure. Yeah, so why don't uh, we start with Proverbs 10.13. Yes, Proverbs 10.13. On the lips of the discerning wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Tremper Longman, who's a, an Old Testament scholar, um, and I, I will say with Tremp, Tremper, he, he, he will make statements and, and give in his wonderful uh, books, commentaries on Proverbs, he'll uh, bring this out, but then he'll say, well, but they did spank, and you know, spanking is similar to what they did in the Old Testament. So I scratched my head and said, okay, Tremper, I love everything else you say, but I disagree with you on that. Um, but Tremper translates it, wisdom is found on understanding lips, but a rod is for the backs of those lacking heart. Because the word for understanding is more often translated heart, one's character, you know, hmm. one's soul. So the, who, is, who is the one who lacks soul, lacks heart, lacks character? The it's the one who's the fool. Yes, oh, yeah. exactly. So um, it doesn't say you must apply the rod on the back of the one who has that character. It, as a couple of these other passages that we'll look at bringing out, um, there's a corollary. You know, it's like the rod is a magnet to the back of the one who is a fool. You know, uh, wherever you see a fool, you see the rod. Uh, and wherever you see uh, the rod, you often see a fool. Okay. If you, if you have a wise son, you're not going to see the rod. He doesn't have a rod on his back. He's not wearing the rod. Uh, but the, the fool is one who has is, who is demonstrated himself to be a fool. Which, by the way, a fool has made moral choices, which little children can't. Yeah. You know? So um, we have to consider that. This is a very similar verse. There are several other verses that are like this, Proverbs 10, 20, the words of the godly are like sterling silver and the heart of a fool is worthless. And so one of the things we have to do is compare similar verses mm -hmm. uh, and you know, compare them with others. This is another description of a fool. In other words, what they wanted to do is imprint on the mind of those who are learning, these sons who are learning, do you want to be the kind of guy who grows up with the with your back being beaten all the time or do you want to choose the way of wisdom and, and not have that uh, the fool has uh, is one who is dull and obstinate you find this 50 different times in proverbs um but he's obstinate to god's word not necessarily yeah. the parent uh, the fool is one who is morally stupid and, and stubborn who, who doesn't understand the things of, of the Lord at all. And the fool is one who's closed-minded. Ephesians uh, talks about it as being blind. He, he refuses to hear what God has to say. Yeah. That's the fool. The, the foolish one is, is essentially a practicing atheist, even though he might be one who owns the covenant. You know, he, he could be circumcised. 
He could be going through the Passover with his family. He could be doing all these things. But he is at the point in his life where he is consistently demonstrating in his walk, in his life, and in his speech that he is, um, is an unbeliever. He doesn't believe God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I think one distinction yeah. here that I've kind of come to understand because I hear a lot of parents, especially those who kind of stick to more punitive um, philosophies, say that children are foolish. And so these verses do apply to them. But you would say that there's a pretty stark difference in the book of Proverbs between one who's foolish and one who's childish. Is that correct? Oh, definitely. And again, it's because of our, our language we can say somebody's you know foolish and have a lot of different meanings right the hebrew word for fool is essentially a practicing atheist okay he could he could be a religious jew and still atheist in his heart uh you know he, he is one who is denied the fool says in his heart heart there is no god that yeah. kind of wraps it up okay. a child doesn't say that because the child has not yet learned you know, a child is still learning the ropes. Right. So there, there really is, it's a major stretch to try to say the child is a fool and uh, correlate that to what Proverbs says. Another characteristic of a fool is somebody who is constantly violating God's law, Ten Commandments and all the other laws, and is constantly... Um, essentially doing things that are against what God wants, you know, so if it, you know, dishonoring mom and dad one, one or two or three or four times, you know, that's one thing, but when they're around the teens and this happens very defiantly and consistently that, that, you know, the radar goes up and you think, well, maybe, maybe the son is a fool and that's how they see it. Uh, William Webb, in his book, points out that there were a hundred different, a hundred and sixty different violations of the law that called for public corporal punishment. Which, by the way, corporal punishment with a rod on the back for older sons from about the age of twelve on up was at the gates before the elders, with mom and dad present, or in some other. Public. It wasn't taking them into the bedroom privately and, you know, spanking it. Pulling it their pants <laughs> Yeah, no, it wasn't that at all. So one word that we can think of when we think of a fool is, um, is one who denies and hates God, who is essentially a delinquent. Hmm. And, you know, you can have a delinquent and then you can have a criminal. In our system, we kind of see similarities but they're separate in that ancient hebrew culture a delinquent was just on the cusp of being a a, uh, a criminal so the other thing about this verse it's descriptive it's not um not a command it serves as a warning to the sons who are in training and basically the broader impact is is more than merely one's personal affront to God's law. You know, such a person dishonored his parents. They were very, very, you know, much like um, 
the Chinese culture, Asian cultures, you know, honor is extremely important. We see this with the conservative Muslims and that's how it was then. Yeah. I mean, if you dishonored mom or dad, you shamed them. They they had a right to uh, really bring down harsh punishment, but little children don't do that. No. (laughs) You know, so the the rod any other thoughts or questions before we talk about the rod well one thing i thought was interesting that you mentioned is uh is that a fool kind of intentionally breaks the law of god mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i've been reading um sketches of jewish social life by rabbi edersheim yes and one thing i think is very interesting that he mentions is that in ancient jewish culture children sons were not held to the law until they were after their bar mitzvah until after 12 or 13. Right. So a fool really couldn't you, if a child was not held to the law of God, they really couldn't be considered a fool. It seems like to me for breaking the law of God. Right. Correct. Okay. I agree with that. And and I think that that concept is invested in the word na'ar. There's an association with, not our son, uh, and exactly what you were talking about. But uh, yeah, certainly they trained their children. They taught them well. They, uh, you know, they went through the rituals. They were there. They had the reading of the law. They, they went to temple or tabernacle, whatever. But they were not yet, um, I would just say, responsible or culpable uh, mm-hmm. before the law and remember the law was not just merely the moral aspect of the law it was the civil mm-hmm. and the religious and all three were tied together you, you couldn't clearly separate them mm. um, they all had you know it was one big ball called the law and there were different aspects of it but yeah good good point Thank you for joining us for the first installment of our interview with Dr. Don on the Proverbs. Join us next week as we continue the interview in part two. Thanks so much for listening to Tending Lambs. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please join our Facebook group, Tending Lambs Community Group. You can follow our Facebook page, facebook.com slash tendinglambs, and find the show notes page and lots of other gentle parenting resources at our website, tendinglambs.com. Until next time.